Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast contains explicit language. Welcome back to Candidate Confessional. I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. Now, Jason, if a glossy magazine editor could have elected a Republican in 2012... There's no question that John Huntsman would have been their guy, right? I mean, maybe. I'm kind of thinking Huckabee, but you could be right. I mean, actually, you're totally right. I mean, there was a moment where you literally couldn't walk into any transit hub, Hudson News, without seeing some magazine mash note to this guy. That's probably an exaggeration, but to your your point, at least, Huntsman was the preferred choice of the long-form editor in a Vogue profile. Yes, Vogue. Vogue. The author acknowledged his glossy factor, quote, with his tan face and salt and pepper hair, he looks so good in check shirts and denim jackets that the Wall Street Journal recently compared the launch of his campaign to a Ralph Lauren product rollout. Well, in fairness, I mean, the photos that accompany the article were shot by Annie Leibovitz in Clooney lighting. Man, you know your Vogue, Jason. Well, I mean, I did my research. <laughs> but it wasn't just magazine. that magazine. It was Esquire, too. The author could have been describing Clooney himself when he wrote that Huntsman was, quote, Built like a long-distance runner, wearing a dark suit, a white shirt, and a blue tie. His graying hair is neatly parted. He looks rich, which he is. Wow, I'm getting goosebumps. Me too. Now, you can see why writers went gaga for the guy. Huntsman was a cooler Mitt Romney, the kind of aspirational Republican that, well, Aaron Sorkin would have created. He was a successful governor of Utah who wasn't afraid to get on a motorcycle and... In addition, tackle climate change. He accepted an ambassadorship to China simply because the president asked, and it didn't matter that that president was Barack Obama. But despite the glossy adulation, Huntsman, he knew deep down that his Republican Party had changed dramatically while he was in China. Exactly. He knew that his chance of winning the nomination was a long shot, and he was proven right. Beyond the bluster. Behind the bunting. Past the posters. After the ads. The campaign picks up. And the motorcade moves on. What happens when the votes are counted? And democracy doesn't go your way. This is Candidate Confessional, a HuffPost podcast. I'm Sam Stunn. (laughs) I'm sorry. Actually, I'm Sam Stunn. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And we approve this podcast. Let's go back, not to when you jumped in in 2012, but when you won your re-election for governor of Utah in yep. 2008. Right. Uh, as we've read, it was at that moment 
uh, that the conversations first started happening about you potentially being a presidential candidate. What are those early conversations actually like? Well, I was totally blown away by it because <laughs> I never thought of myself as a presidential candidate. I mean, we'd served a, a, a term. We turned around a lot of things. We'd been innovative in terms of our approach to tax policy, education, the environment, a few other things, in sort of a non-traditional Republican sense. Yeah. But it's when, as you remember, the Republican Party was talking about things like climate change, the environment, health care reform. And we were on the cutting edge, immigration reform. Yeah. You know, Janet Napolitano and I, a Republican and a Democrat, we got all Western governors behind a comprehensive approach to immigration reform. So why did it catch you off guard that someone would come up and be, hey? Because I just, Timber. you know, a simple kid from Utah uh, <laughs> who grew up in, in you know, San Fernando Valley of California. And every time somebody would bring that up, I would shudder because I'd think, don't even start that conversation. I, I'm not in that league. That, that, that's not me. I'm just a failed musician turned <laughs> politician. No one's going to believe you're riddled with self-doubt. Come on. No, really? no, it's, you know, you're, you're running a state and you look at the people on the big stage of life, presidential politics. You got to remember, I was an advanced man when they called them advanced men for Ronald Reagan, uh, the lowest level guy in the White House staff. And I saw the level at which people operate in the presidency. And then I worked for other presidents after that. And, you know, I was just kind of an elected governor out west, and I didn't see myself in that league. And then um, journalists start coming out, New York Times, a New Republic, you know, stuff that I'd read for a long time, to do stories on this unique management style of a Republican. <laughs> and I thought, there's something strange happening here, I, 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 because I never put myself in the context of national compar comparables, you know, what we were doing versus others and how we might be seen. I just, I just was not aware. Um, perhaps innocent. Uh, <laughs> but uh, after we were reelected, uh, we carried every county. Uh, what, record, you by 78%? Yeah, yeah, 78%. Yeah. We, first time a uh, statewide official had ever won every county in the state. And uh, I got more Democrats than my Democratic opponent. Uh, oh, got a bad. lot of independents, uh, uh, Republicans, of course. And across the finish line and thought, this is going to be a great second term. And so then the national uh, leeches of the Republican Party say, hey, we can turn you into a president. You should think you about know, that. You it's, know, it's interesting because I never had the first conversation with the Republican Party. Not during my campaign, not during my tenure, not after my reelection. I didn't even know who the Republican Party chair was. They never once called, and I never once called them. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So who did so you have the first conversation with? About running for president? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, political um, uh, strategists. So like the John Weaver types. Basically. People like that. Yeah. They would meet with my chief of staff and others, and they would have these conversations, and I tell my folks, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to hear about it. It's, it's a total waste of time. We have stuff to do. And I thought it was just people, you know, trying to generate new business for themselves, as they do. Uh, I never really took it that seriously. But that was the first inkling that maybe we were being seen as something other than just a local and then instead of instead of building up to do a run in 2012 you decided to like go in the exact opposite direction and you accepted the ambassadorship to china now uh john weaver the aforementioned strategist who did end up helping your campaign he told the the new york times that when you let him know that you had accepted that ambassadorship position uh he said something to you or you said something to him that couldn't be printed in the paper because it was a family paper. So I'm assuming there were people who were upset by your decision. 
Well, um, there were some behind the scenes, and I wasn't directly involved. These things are best when they just happen naturally <laughs> and organically. Uh, who thought that, you know, I should be considering a run for the presidency. And I thought, well, just let this nurture and mature, see what happens. But the marketplace will go where it goes. And if you're that good and if people think that highly of you, then you'll naturally migrate there. And then we got a call from the White House, you know, after my reelection months following. And I knew at that point that I had no choice. You know, when your president asks you to do something, you stand up and you salute. Did you assume when you accepted that position that, that was going to close your door for any higher office? You know, I wasn't thinking serious. This is how naive I was. I, I wasn't thinking seriously <laughs> about the higher office implications. I always believe that if you do the right thing, uh, the implications will follow and they will be profoundly positive. Also, if- but also at that time, it wasn't the association with Obama wasn't considered such a toxic. So at badge, the time, yeah. uh, Gates was at Department of Defense. Petraeus was at the CIA. Uh, He had other Republicans around him who uh, I long respected. Um, And there was a sense that he was bringing a bipartisan coalition to this very exciting kind of new frontier-ish moment uh, for public service. And I'd studied, you know, the new frontier years, 1960, and the people who came around Kennedy. And I thought, you know, this could be another such exciting moment uh, when they started talking to me about this. Uh, but but I knew once those conversations started that I I, I couldn't play politics with it, sure. and uh, and I got a lot of pushback from people who said you're 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 a fool for doing that. You know you, you're in a perfect position to do this and that. You've got you know the the end of your last term, and uh, you got a great future after that. How long did you how long did you debate or deliberate over the decision to 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 take the ambassadorship? I knew when it was uh, rolled out, right then and there that. I was I was done. <clears throat> I mean, I went back and talked to Mary Kay and and the kids, but you got to remember, a big part of my life has been involved in U.S. Asian relations and specifically U.S. China relations. And, uh, and and let's face it, finding an envoy to China is not an easy thing to do. Someone who's acceptable to them, somebody who actually knows something about the subject matter, and moreover, somebody who can pass Senate confirmation. And I've been through Senate confirmation twice before that for other appointments. Hundred uh, percent vote, um, and, and I and I thought you're doing something good for your country if you do this. And at that point, did running for president even seem like an attractive thing to do? Wasn't like, even thinking about it. While you were in China, were you uh, paying attention at all to what was going domestically, politically? I did because people would come to visit uh, periodically, and they would say, "You can't understand over here what has happened to your party. Lehman Brothers has collapsed. People are angry. The president has been vilified." Um, uh, the Tea Party has risen up. Yeah. Uh, and so I was governing in the pre-Lehman period. So if you were an anthropologist dissecting this stuff, you'd say <laughs> there, was a, there was a pre-Lehman moment and a post-Lehman moment. Yeah. Like rings of a tree. Baby. And, <laughs> and I governed during the pre-Lehman moment where the party remained optimistic, creative, innovative, um, a big tentish in, in, in orientation. And then post-Lehman, there was a distinct shift in attitudes uh, and in uh, in desires in terms of what they wanted out of their elected officials. Did that disappoint you when you heard about the, the Tea Party or the, the rise of that sort of philosophy? I mean, it, it, it did because I knew what was happening to a lot of important ideas that Republicans had put their signatures to, including health care reform. Yeah. You don't think about it that way. That was largely a Republican initiative. 
to fix the healthcare system in a way that was focused on expanding market orientation, more access to affordable and portable insurance policies, and taking costs out of, out of the system. And I thought on the environmental side that we had built up some real credibility in an area that p- people cared about. And, uh, and as somebody who was friendly to marriage equality, which was a tough thing for me to talk about as governor of Utah, I just got slammed. But the attitude shifted completely in support of uh, in the state of Utah, which was amazing. And it was, it was Republicans, conservatives, who actually led a lot of that marriage equality march. It, a, a, absolutely. And I thought, this is all being shut down, and we're now taking an angry approach to burn the place down. And it was, in a sense, uh, understandable because people's bank accounts had just disappeared. Their retirements, their home values had just been eviscerated. And, uh, and they were downright scared. And for me, 10,000 miles away, it was watching kind of the, the, the forest fire uh, expand and my party begin to be consumed by it all. So as you watch, as you watch this forest fire develop and as you had in the back of your head a better template for getting it done, uh, the one that you had done in Utah, it seems logical that you began to sort of agitate towards fixing the direction of your party. Was this happening while you were ambassador? You know, I did a lot of observing uh, while I was in China. I loved the work uh, managing the U.S.-China relationship, and so I didn't have a lot of time for U.S. domestic sure. politics. But I knew also that we were going to be there for a couple of years. I had my family there. I had uh, a couple of sons who were just beginning their military careers. I had a daughter getting married. Uh, the air was unbreathable, and at some point you gotta you, know, you have to move on. And it's a uh, uh, it's a job that consumes everything you've got. And for me, it was a labor of love because I, I I enjoy every aspect of that kind of work. Um, but as we started thinking about returning, it was what do we do when we return? And we still had those voices out there saying, "There's a huge opening. Uh, there are some people who are going to do it, but they're yesterday's ball game. And the stuff that will be needed in terms of content and substance are exactly the things that you worked on as governor. And you may have some credibility, so think about it." your first splash uh, with a Newsweek interview that caught a few folks off guard. Can you talk to me or talk to us about that interview and, and whether it was deliberate to do it that way? No. I remember it well. I think it was with <laughs> McKay Coppins. It was, yes. And I remember where I was when I gave it uh, and what happened when it hit the newsstands. Uh, and where, I think where, I... Where, where were you? It, it, I was, I was on, on, uh, on home leave from Beijing uh, and it was during Thanksgiving break or something. And, uh, and I gave a fairly anodyne response to the question about running for president, uh, as in, you know, maybe we'll leave the option open or so, or you never close out options. Not thinking in a thousand years that when it hit, it would be, <laughs> you know, he's going for it and this, that, the other. And, uh, and it hit uh, with the power and fervor uh, of, of, of nothing I've felt before, uh, personally, <laughs> people both for you and against you. 
uh, on that count. And I had no sense that, again, just a governor from Utah, that one comment to a Newsweek reporter would, would, would produce that kind of response. And that, in a sense, got the market moving. There's nothing we could do about it at that point. The market started moving. People knew we were coming back. And people who wanted us to run started organizing around that thought. Those who didn't want us to run started throwing stuff at us. They were sitting, you know, in China toward the end. Because all I wanted to do was to manage the relationship and be faithful and loyal to the team that I had there and worked with, yeah. uh, including the White House, because I was working with them, too. And if we ran for president, it would all be after I got back. And, you know, as a citizen, uh, as a civilian at that point, we'd kind of think it through. But you know how politics works. It's always the game running up to somebody sure. running. And it goes through news cycles, and the news cycles then have a multiplier effect with respect to additional news cycles. Pretty soon we were being talked about in ways that I was not accustomed to. And you were still ambassador at the point. Right at the very end. Yeah. Exactly right. Was it, just, what were, was it surreal to see you be talked about and debated as a legitimate candidate or as a... It, it, it was. talked about in a negative way? Like, it, this guy's got no chance or... It, it, it <laughs> was. Because I thought you could apply the politics of Utah, which we had down pretty well. At the national level, there's a, a, a different aspect to the debate. There's a lot more vitriol. There's a lot more criticism, critiquing, uh, invasiveness, and that all kind of started at that point. We're not all Utah. And there's also <laughs> there's also like a lot of press. That's true, Sam. Yeah. You're not, yeah. There's also a lot of reporters. I remember looking at old um, press conferences you had in Utah, whether it would be like four reporters in sweaters. Just yeah, It was more of a conversation. It wasn't very adversarial. I mean, I'm sure they asked you tough questions, but it wasn't this frenzy that the presidential race could do. That, that's right. And uh, I was, I'd never been in a situation where you actually have to talk about somebody else. It was always about ideas and how are you going to make the ideas a reality. In national politics today, it's always about somebody else. I mean, look at these guys on the presidential right. campaign trail. They spent half their news conference talking about the other people. Did you ever have a sit-down meeting with your family to say, okay, I want to maybe run for president. What do you guys think? Or did you just like let it slip in Newsweek? Hey, I think I might do this. And then it kind of happened. <laughs> I'll tell you, go, going back to running for governor, when my girls sat me down and convinced me to do it, I, I hadn't considered it. I was a trade negotiator at the time. I was deputy U.S. trade representative and uh, and doing a lot of those deals that Donald Trump uh, castigates with a guy named Bob Zellick, who was the U.S. trade representative and then later uh, president of the World Bank. And, and I was on the road constantly. And the girls sat me down and said, we don't see you very often. We'd like our dad back. Thank you very much. And I said, what do you think I ought to do? I'm kind of doing what uh, life has taken me to and I'm trained to, what I'm trained to do, a combination of public and private sectors. And they said, we think you ought to run for governor of our state. And I thought it was the craziest idea in the world. And we took a weekend to talk about it. We had some conversations. And I thought, they sometimes know you better than you know yourself. And I've come to trust the instincts of the girls in my family, because they're, they're far savvier than I am. Uh, we had a similar conversation around running for president. And, and one of my regrets is that I didn't bring them out more and sooner in the campaign. They came out at some point, you know, the John 2012 girls, and uh, like a, you know, a, a, a hair band from the 80s, you get one hit and then you disappear. <laughs> <laughs> they, they had, a, they had a, a hit or two. Uh, viral uh, YouTube posts. But they were more of a reflection than me than I could present myself just as, as a single person on stage. 
And uh, they, they were the most powerful weapon I had in the campaign. You said you, uh, you had had these conversations uh, prior, uh, around when the news article came out, and that there were some people who you thought were yesterday's news, and other, there was a niche, essentially, that you could fill. What was the grand vision? Now, now, that you've, now that the ball's rolling, what was the grand vision for how you were going to run? The grand vision for me was uh, an economy that, the, that had just imploded. Um, a record of job creation and economic policies, including tax reform, which we had done uh, in a rather historic way, got a lot of national recognition at the time. So what then needed to be done in the country? Well, we needed to right our position in the world. I thought we were way too top-heavy in the Middle East, and indeed we were and are. Mm -hmm. And we needed to focus more on the traditional trade routes and diplomatic relationships that would sustain us well into the 21st century, Asia, spent my whole life there, knew more about China than any other person walking uh, the country. And, uh, uh, and on the economic side, I thought, you know, you could really make for an important platform for the American people, mixing a new direction on foreign policy together with a jobs agenda that you don't talk about, but you actually done. What was the feedback you got from, from advisors in terms of like, the, the negative aspect of running or like the difficulty of running? You got to remember, I'd never run a national campaign yeah. before. So when we decided to move forward with some of the due diligence, some of the probing around to see if it was even feasible, um, I was with people I'd never worked with before. The whole team, it was totally experimental. It was like putting together a band, you know, overnight and then being on the stage that next weekend. And uh, we had to learn each other, become comfortable with each other. They had to learn me about me. I had to learn about them. And that took some doing. I wasn't accustomed to that totally. Wait, so you actually literally did not know some of your top campaign advisors? No. Wow. What were those early conversations yeah, it was like? A, it, 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 you know, I knew, I knew our, our strategist somewhat because I'd co-chaired the John McCain campaign in 2008. Right. You're Tim, talking about Weaver. Weaver, yeah. 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 And uh, uh, Tim Pawlenty had been the other national co-chairman. <laughs> and McCain brought us in as two young governors and uh, made us co-chairs of his campaign. So we knew Rick Davis and John Weaver and people. Yeah. Yeah, I liked them all. I thought they were they were pretty incredible, pretty talented people. And we all love John. And yeah, that kind of what brought yeah. us to the table. And so, uh, so I, knew, I knew John Weaver somewhat. Uh, but the others, no, I, I didn't. And my team didn't. I didn't have much of a team from Utah. You know, they were out here. They weren't national political types. So it was literally starting uh, with a blank sheet of paper, drafting a plan, uh, and getting to know the team around you as you begin to execute. Did you find that that put you at a disadvantage? Well, did you have trouble trusting them? Yeah. We, you know, in politics, trust is everything. And uh, you have to develop that trust because you're, you find yourself in the trenches of combat and warfare pretty quickly. And uh, you have to know who's on your team and who isn't. And having never run a national campaign before, now now I would do things a whole lot differently because <laughs> you've been through that clinical trial before. How would you do it differently then? Well, first of all, you would you would make sure that uh, your run was in sync with an opening in history that was compatible with what you were bringing to the table, instead of a random entry into politics. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't think a lot of I'm not much of a politician. I'm the first to admit that I'm not a great politician. You won uh, with seventy eight percent in Utah. You no, have to have some job. That wasn't based on on being a politician. That was based on leading and being a public servant Fine. and capturing the aspirations of the people and making it real. Okay. I mean, that's in the purest sense. You know not a politician in, in the performance sense. Okay. <laughs> right. And, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm now totally convinced that the opening in history has to be right for what you bring to the table. And that's kind of consideration number one. 
And if you don't sort of careen head on with your opening in history or what you bring personality-wise and the tools based upon your history and your experiences, if they don't match your opening in history, you're dead meat. One of the first uh, decisions that was made uh, was the announcement video uh, that, and just to describe because it's a podcast, it featured a man on a dirt bike riding through the deserts of Utah. We didn't see the man's face, and it was supposed to be you. It wasn't you, but it was supposed to be you. It was it was a it kind was of like a wild 70s, video. Yeah, it was like it was, a '70s Robert Altman short, yeah, was, short film. <laughs> what was? I just generally want to know how did that come together? Well, it came together. <laughs> it was like kind of evil Knievel. Yeah, well, like, that's what I'd hoped it to be: evil ah, Knievel jumping the canyon. So, my, get my 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 sordid past includes having been a motocross racer. Yes, and and I love extreme sports. And one of the things we did when I was governor of Utah, we brought in the Dew Tour and the X Games, and and I know Travis Pastrana and the people who are at the top of their game in terms of motorcycle theatrics and that kind of thing. And I I love that. I love that. What a name dropper. <laughs> yeah, He's you a are a name dropper. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm nodding like take, I know who you're talking take, about. Yeah, take that with a thing. <laughs> but a whole bunch of people do, Sam. Sure. A whole bunch of people do. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And so my thought was, how do you capture the beauty of Utah, Red Rock, you know, the environment I love and help to protect with uh, the energy, the adrenaline, the caffeine rush of you know, extreme sports, you know, appealing to the younger generation, you know, off jumps and doing things, you know, introducing yourself to, to America yeah. as something a little different from the West, not the same old stuff, you know, with the same mood music in the background. Because I hate, I hate political advertising. It's all just trash. <laughs> I thought, let's do something different. The past didn't work. We don't need that. We need vitality, the comfort of experience. Someone who knows China, knows Asia, but knows that America can only be strongest abroad when we are strong here at home. And, and then when I saw the finished pro- and I wanted to write in it first, first of all, we just couldn't find the time to get out there and make it all happen because we were just sort of taking it. So it was my motorcycle. It was my riding gear. It was, and it was your story pitch. You pitched that ad. That well, was your idea? It, it didn't turn out the way okay. that uh, I had pitched it. And then it came with somebody not even getting out of first gear. Now, if you're a motorcycle rider, you know what it means, not getting out of first gear, maybe second gear, you know, sort of carefully plodding along. That wasn't me, you know. So that troubled it's, you that you noticed, like, this guy. It was not, it was not extreme. When I first <laughs> looked at that, I thought, 
No, this isn't the adrenaline rush that, that, that I had envisioned initially. This, this doesn't pack the punch where people see it and they say, wow, this is something altogether new that's coming at us politically. Why didn't you do like say, we're going to tear this up. I'm going to get into third gear. Don't, don't <laughs> even ask me because they brought out the helicopters and they sent me the bill. Oh. I thought, are you kidding me? How much was for it? This? How much, much was for it? For this? I'm not even going to tell you. Oh, oh wait, just, just I haven't even told my wife. <laughs> the name of the podcast is Candidate Confessional. Yeah, you gotta <laughs> you gotta, seven, it wasn't That's seven all figures, I'm good. That's it? all I'm going right, to say. Fine, fine. So, when what was your first impression of life on the trail? I think your first trip was up to uh, New Hampshire, my neck of the woods, where you went to a uh, little steakhouse outside of Hanover, and you started meeting some voters. Did you get a good feel for the voters at that point, or was it still too raw? It it was. Uh, it, it was new, uh, and uh, the environment was one that I hadn't experienced before. Again, I'm just a Western guy. Yeah. And when you show up someplace and there there's more media than there are civilians there to <laughs> greet, I thought, now this is something I've not experienced before. This is altogether new. This is for showtime. Yeah. This isn't, you know, this isn't real politicking. So you go in, you make your little stump speech, you go around, shake hands. And listen, I'm a people person. I love people. And that's what I loved about politics as much as getting things done. I loved sitting down with people of all backgrounds and learning something new, only to find that that's not what you do on the campaign trail necessarily. You got to talk a lot about yourself. You got to talk a lot about your accomplishments. You use a lot of the personal pronoun. Um, and, uh, and you got to put your ego on display. And after a while, I thought, this is going to be a tough go. Also, making the transition from being a diplomat in probably the most uh, confined, um, cloistered environment we have in the world, China, where you work every day literally and figuratively in a different language, and the stuff you do most Americans will never hear about. Uh, you go from that mindset uh, to the most circus-like theatrical atmosphere in the world, that of running for president of the United States, and your brain has to shift gears. You got to go from one to another, and I found, <laughs> I found that to be a tough transition. For you, how did the friction manifest itself, right? You go from being in the diplomatic world to being in this very combative world. Did you feel like you had to do things or say things It's it, it, that it, it, It's not all bad, and, you know, and I love so many aspects of it. Uh, as we reflect on it, our, fa our family does a lot. Um, one of the worst parts about it is you have to take gratuitous pot shots at your opponents, yeah. it, deserved or not. You just got to take pot shots at them. To get in the mindset where you've constantly got to be tearing and ripping down your opponent on the, on the flimsiest of charges uh, never struck me as being a useful use of but time. It, but it was more than that because you had written letters praising President Obama while being the ambassador to China, which in a normal world is a fairly reasonable thing to do. He was well, your boss. He, well, here's what I did. But then those letters came back to haunt you. Wait, he's well, here, here's yeah, what I did. I want to set it up. I had a meeting with the president <laughs> in, the, in the Oval and uh, on a, a kind of a covert meeting on, a, I think, a Sunday, asked me formally to, to do the job. And I wrote him a note after, uh, as I did Hillary Clinton, which will probably come back to haunt me, uh, <laughs> saying, you know, saying in it, you know, you're a remar you know, you're a remarkable leader kind of thing. And I thought, you know, it's pretty remarkable to to bring a Republican who helped to run your opponent's campaign, you know, just months ago. I thought that was pretty remarkable. And I said something because I also worked with Hillary Clinton uh, 
when she was Secretary of State, saying something, you know, about our work together. It, I just do that. It's the old-fashioned way. You kind of put pen to paper. You write a note thanking people. Uh, so it was just a thank you note based on the meeting and our interaction, uh, which was perfectly normal course of action. But that came back to, to haunt me. There's no doubt about that. Did and you know it was going to when you wrote it? No. I see. This is how naive you, you are when you're just being a normal person. Yeah. You know, a normal thing to do. You know, you don't stop to think, oh, he's a Democrat. I'm a Republican. And it might, you know, the calculation is it might hurt my future. I, I'm not going to write it. Or if I write it, it's going to be hard-edged. You know, you just do the right thing always. What did you, th- what did you think when the note leaked? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, who was that SOB who, who leaked that note? <laughs> the universe- Who's been in my file? The yeah, universe was, is pretty small, man. It's got to be someone in the, the Obama. Uni- the universe is pretty small. But that was an early indi- indication of how petty I thought things were going to be. Do you remember a moment in the campaign where you thought, what am I doing here? Or what did I get myself into? Whether it was a campaign <laughs> stop or, you know. In- you know, every day you think, this is the most bizarre undertaking in the world. I mean, uh, give who us an am example. I? Yeah, us an who example. am I to be standing in the shoes of a presidential candidate walking the streets of Manchester, New Hampshire, or, you know, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, and and shaking hands with people and saying, "I'd like your vote." for president of the United States. I never said that once without it playing in my head as if, are you kidding me? You're, <laughs> you just asked that person to vote for you as president of the United States. You're actually doing this. So if, if you're a normal person, as I like to think that I am, you don't put your shoes on any morning when you're going out to town hall meetings or to the glad hand or make speeches without thinking most of the day, uh, lucky, lucky me. Uh, I get to do this. Everybody else is watching, and they get to critique and do their thing. But how few people actually get to be a candidate for the highest office in the land? And it was always an exhilarating thought for me. So, But it always felt weird to say, I'm running for president. Can I have your vote? Oh, listen, and if it didn't feel weird to somebody, then they're not normal. So you don't wake up in the morning and hear Harold the Chief doesn't no. Harold the Chief. No. That's not your no. regular I'd, style? I'd wake up and I'd hear <laughs> Foo Fighters and you know, then I, so, I'd get up to work. So you were you were running as, as sort of the more the most reasonable man in the room in, in a party that had lurched uh, pretty far from reasonableness. Um, and I was wondering, like, did you walk into certain crowds and rooms and did it feel uncomfortable because the party wanted something more from you than reason? I started feeling the effects of the Lehman collapse. So we talked earlier about the anthropological Mm -hmm. approach to the pre-Lehman versus post-Lehman division in the Republican Party, um, at least as you look at it chronologically. Um, And when I started some of the town hall meetings early on, the questions that were asked about immigration and, uh, and illegals were so hot and so emotional and I had led the charge for immigration reform as governor. Uh, and we had a program in our state which gave a driver privilege card to people who were not properly documented. They had to keep the economy going. And moreover, I didn't want to have people in cars get in accidents with no insurance and really cause a problem. So I just looked at it pragmatically and thought, this is what we have to do. Oh, well, that boy, I'll tell you, that would come up in meetings. And I thought I was a, I was a dead man. Uh, but it was the chain, change in tone and tenor on certain issues, like climate change, where before, you know, you could have reasonably, you know, healthy conversations about policy options. So what do you do about it? 
What do you do with respect to putting a price on carbon? What do you do in working with the tailpipe guys, the oil guys, and, and the coal people? Uh, always, in, always in the spirit of, of finding solutions. It became uh, a huge negative in a lot of these early town hall meetings. And the questions that would be asked were so pointed. And I'd never been on that receiving end before. And at the same time, you were getting sort of this glossy magazine coverage of your campaign. A lot of early, very positive Maybe press. people felt sorry for me. I don't know. <laughs> Do you, was there a dis- there was a Vogue piece, yeah. But was there, well, was, if, there was that a sign Andy, of trouble? If or? Annie Leibovitz comes knocking oh, at your door, totally. you're not going to say no, you can't take you the family's get, picture. Yeah, I mean, maybe, yes. I mean, I've done three of those. Uh, but was that a sign Was that a sign of trouble, You th- did you think, or did it give you sort of a false sense that you might actually be, you know, doing well? I, I, no, I knew it was, I knew it was uphill. And it was totally uphill from the very beginning. It was the whole thing for me was, can we break through in New Hampshire? And I've been around national politics, at least as as an observer, not a practitioner, to know that Iowa matters somewhat. New Hampshire matters a whole lot. And if you catch the right altitude there, then you can move on with a head of steam to South Carolina. And you can pretty much write your script from there. Uh, and and it's, But I, I knew it was an uphill battle from the beginning, given the tone and tenor, the changes within my party that were much different than what I, ex- I had experienced before. And you've spoken to this about the frustration you kind of felt when you would watch uh, some of the other candidates have their time as the front runners in the race. So you had Herman Cain, uh, you know, a very decorated uh, pizza CEO. Uh, with a not, with a tax plan that was so simplistic, the nine 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 plan, and, and and he would get this, you know, in tremendous coverage, and he'd get a bump in the polls, and here you are. He was leading in the polls. He was leading in the polls for a yeah. little time. Yeah. Here you are, sort of struggling to, you know, stay afloat. Can you dive a bit deeper into the frustration that that caused? Well, you know, the frustration comes at a lot of different levels, unless you can put it in perspective and say I'm playing the long game, and the long game is New Hampshire, and you have to keep thinking about getting enough people on your side in New Hampshire. But the frustration would be uh, in the form of fundraising phone calls, which which I despised. You know, where you're calling people, you're going to New York and banging on the doors of hedge fund managers or whatever, asking for money time after time. And and their response was always, well, you know, as soon as you're out of two and three or four percent, you know, we'll we'll give you some money. You get back to town hall meetings and you get yelled at over the same issues and you think, where when's this cycle uh, ever going to end? Um, and, and that's when it, it creates a little bit of despair. You can't see a way out until you kind of think again about New Hampshire. Then you kind of found a found a way to stand up by being the guy who was willing to say enough of this bullshit, for better lack of a better term. Mm. For for instance, the famous we, we call it horseshit in horseshit, Utah, but sorry, wherever you're from, my my, New my apologies. For instance, the tweet about not denying global warming, right? That resonated because you were like, my party's gone a little bit off the deep end. Um, but not to do that one, because let's get more uh, r- more uh, recent, which is you were one of the few, if not the only person who refused to go grovel at the feet of Donald Trump. Mm. It's true. Why? Well, because I thought it as 90% theatrics and 10% fundraising. And it was everything that I disdained about politics. Uh, everything I disdained about politics. Uh, politics about big personalities, about big fundraising, about things that were totally non-substantive. And, uh, and I watched people one by one go up to the Gilded Tower and do their thing. And I thought, this is, you know, I'd rather go down in flames and play that game. It's just not right. It's not what the American people want. Yet everybody, I was so shocked. One by one, they would line up and they'd, and they'd do it. And I just decided that 
I wouldn't be part of it. Were you surprised that Romney did it? Totally, because he was a front runner. I mean, he didn't have to do it. Uh, you didn't have to. I didn't have to. I actually talked to Donald Trump about this when I hosted the our event in New Hampshire not long ago. We shook hands and made up. You know, he said, this is you know, the no labels. He said, yeah. He said, you know, you called me a horse's ass. I said, yeah. I said, you called me stuff too. He said, Jake. He said, that. <laughs> he said I, I always knew you were a good guy. You know, <laughs> you never came to see me. And he said, that's why I didn't, you know, somebody in my universe had called him. I didn't know that. And, but he thought it was from me. And he said, you know, I was delaying the phone call just to, you know, make you feel it. And I said, I wasn't even aware of that part. But we had a fun conversation about it. It was actually interesting. The reason Romney's people did it, they told me, was because they weren't, it wasn't the fundraising. They were worried that Donald Trump would spend the next six months just being nasty to him if they didn't kiss the proverbial ring. And well, that, if, you're, if you're a strong nominee with a good base of support, you don't have to worry about that. You're going to find conflict uh, at some end of the party. Yeah. It's uh, just the image that gets off that is so unfortunate. You had to, at some point when you were running, come across somebody who was just sort of really out there in terms of right-wing conspiracy theories about Obama or about immigration, just in the kind of, in the way that we now see some of Trump supporters are, are acting. And I'm wondering if that happened to you where, you, where you're like, this is nuts. <laughs> oh, yeah, Obama is uh, yeah. not a Muslim or, you know, birther. No, stuff that, 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 that would happen uh, more often than you think about birth certificates and that kind of thing. And the thing, the thing about Donald Trump that I thought was... Uh, a little strange when people started visiting Fifth Avenue was, you know, he was doing the birther thing at the time. And I just thought that was totally counterproductive for the Republican cause to in any way be caught up with something as silly as that. But you, you do get a lot of that on, on the campaign trail. Uh, the birther issue, uh, international conspiracies, some of which had me as a, uh, a functionary. <laughs> T- a function of China. Taking guns really? away. Yeah, yeah. A, a Manchurian candidate yeah. of sorts. Exactly. Right. How would you My daughter who's that? Chinese, you know, how do we know, you know, that she isn't carrying listening devices or what? No, I'm just, I'm, I'm stretching <laughs> it here. But, <laughs> but, there was some but, wild stuff about you on the internet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm curious about how you sort of when you were at these town halls and you and you got this sort of, sort of sharp, angry, uh, you know, audience members who were sort of reeling from unemployment or reeling from the housing crisis. Um, did you modulate or did you look for ways to answer those questions because they seemed to surprise you that there was this anger, this new anger? I'm hearkening back in my mind to uh, my first debate in, in Iowa on the debate stage where the couple of questions I got were about my immigration reform proposals in Utah. Uh, and the next one was about uh, marriage equality. I got booed on both <laughs> like, of them. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I thought, I am so toast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I am, Did you think I am, that, like, in the debate, you, so like, you thought that? Yeah, I thought. And then, and then they had that tax, or that, uh, that one in ten question, you know, where everybody raised their hand. And, you know, if I had to do it over again, I would have done it differently. Everybody well, expi- explain for the listener what the question was and what you did. Well, the question was something around... Say you had a deal, a real spending cuts deal, ten to one, as, as Byron said, spending cuts to tax increases. Speaker, you're already shaking your head. But who on this stage would walk away from that deal. And it was the ultimate expression of, of hubris, at least where the party had arrived at, where we, if we don't get 100% of something, we're just not going to be for it. When you raise your hand, if you feel so strongly about not raising taxes, you'd walk away on the 10 to 1 deal. 
And, and I'd never raised taxes. We'd reform taxes, we'd cut them, and I thought, okay, this isn't going my way anyway, and I don't want to go on record ever as compromising on taxes because I'm pretty pure on it, and so I, I raised my hand along with everybody else. And, so uh, no one would take the 10 to 1 spending cuts to tax no, nobody, nobody would take that, and, and I remember walking off the stage after that debate thinking, you fool, <laughs> why did you do that? But, you know, you got 10 seconds to think about, you know, while you're calculating all kinds of other things, this being the first time on the debate stage your your entire career. So, you know, you you, you make mistakes. Uh, we talked to Tim Pawlenty, your competitor in this in that cycle. That he, was his one and only debate, he I ma- think. He made a worse mistake than you did, <laughs> yeah. I, I would argue. Um, you talked about being in this sort of uh, self-reinforcing uh, loop of negativity where you're low in the poll number so you don't get money, which means you can't get out of the low digits in the polls. Was there ever a point where you felt like you were breaking out of that? Yes. And it, it, it happens quite late in the game uh, in New Hampshire. So I get back to the, the magical market of New Hampshire uh, where people start turning out, you know, to begin with their 10 or 15 and then 50 and then 100 and then 200. I mean, they're never Trump things of 5,000. I mean, that's such an aberration in politics. Uh, but you can feel it getting bigger and people coming in, taking a genuine interest in you. You've shaken hands with the same person 10 times now and they say, I'm almost there. You know, I'm almost <laughs> cross, cross that barrier where I can support you. And, and you feel the groundswell. You really do. If you keep your ear to the ground and if you're in any way in tune with politics on the ground, you can feel that surge. And it's really exciting when that begins to happen. And I felt it right after, I don't know, it may have been a holiday break in, uh, in 2011, just before the primary, and it was really surging. Thank you all for being here tonight. Let's go to work. Thank you. People were turning out, and then the media would turn out, you know, and the, everything is working right. And I thought, maybe we can pull off uh, a second here. This could be quite remarkable. So everything was kind of was kind of focused on getting a second in New Hampshire, which would have given us rationale to, to move on to South Carolina. Do you think that Rick Santorum's good showing in Iowa doomed you because he ended up getting that second spot? Uh, n- he didn't get second. Ron Paul did. We're going to take that out? Okay, we're going to cut that <laughs> no. out? Let, that, put that one on the record, these noted political journalists here, political historians. I was pretty impressed that you knew that. I know, I was too. And I clearly no, didn't Sam, Sam Torum took probably fifth. Okay. So Gingrich took fourth and Santorum took fifth. Okay. Romney was first, no surprise, because he'd run that primary before. He had a home there. Uh, and, and Ron Paul, who'd run several times before for president, took second. Yeah. And, and we took third. But we were climbing on Ron, on Ron Paul yeah. pretty quickly. You could feel it happening. And when we got third that night, I mean, it, I stood on the stage. I did everything I could to, you know, bring composure to bear and say the right things and speak optimistically about moving on to the next step, which was South Carolina. And we'd just been endorsed by the state, the biggest newspaper in South Carolina. We had a lot of good support on the ground, including Henry McMaster, who's now the lieutenant governor and Trump's top guy there in South Carolina. And, and I knew when we took third that we didn't hit, we didn't hit the mark and that uh, we'd be short-lived. Who did you see as your voter? Who was your target audience that you wanted, like, if I could just bring out these, this segment of the Republican Party, I'd have a chance? So I kind of saw my voter as, um, in the post-Lehman world, the, the somewhat unaffiliated, previously registered or considered themselves to be a Republican in the traditional sense, balance the budgets, get big things done, be optimistic, be visionary, be inclusive, 
Um, but in the post-Lehman world, probably now unaffiliated, but wanting to balance budgets, but be respectful and tolerant on the social side. And I, I, I knew that's where most of the voters resided, right where I was. It's just how do you get to the great unaffiliated population, and that doesn't come until. So writing the script for Iowa through Super Tuesday for me was the hard part. Super Tuesday to the finish line was the easy part, and I could imagine how we would make that happen. See, because most people look at your campaign. Uh, you say that's where most of the voters are, but most people look at your campaign and they wonder, uh, is the Republican Party suited to elect someone who wants to be the reasonable man in the room? And they have their doubts. Well, we go in cycles, too, and uh, reasonableness hasn't prevailed because the issues on the ground haven't uh, manifest themselves in reasonable outcomes. So every reaction is a every action is a reaction to what we've just seen or experienced. And you, you go all the way back to John F. Kennedy after Eisenhower, you know, young versus old, more progressive versus conservative. In every election cycle, you see that. So if Trump gets elected president, chances are the Republican after Trump is going to be the opposite of Trump or whomever wins the next election. And that's going to be someone who's not an entertainer or performer, somebody who takes a completely different approach to getting things done. And I think these are just natural Theodore White cycles of history and politics. So your problem was you ran at the wrong time. It goes right back to the initial comment that I made about what would you do differently? You know, you'd find an opening in politics that was commensurate with the history of our time in which you can step in based upon where you've been, what you've done, what you bring to the table. That makes you relevant. And uh, that... That wasn't the case for us in 2012. Look, well, when was your when would have been your time? You think? I don't. I don't know. Uh, there may never be uh, a time for somebody like me. That was former Utah Governor John Huntsman waxing about his run for the presidency in 2012 and the state of the Republican Party. Thanks to Christine Canetta, our fearless editor. As always, you can find this podcast on iTunes and at thehovenandpost.com. You should tell literally everybody, everybody you know, to rate, review, and subscribe for it. Next week, we have a special guest, Clay Aiken, the American Idol star turned congressional candidate, talks about his unsuccessful run for the House in 2014. And we nearly made him cry. Yeah, that's actually he got, true. He got teared up. He got yeah. teared up. Oh, good point. Till then, dear listener, happy trails. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.